Let's pray. Lord God, we do gather on the firm foundation, the solid rock of Jesus Christ, of his um, righteousness, clothed not in our own good deeds, but in his perfect works, in his sinless life, in his substitutionary death, we stand before you in your grace. And Lord, we pray that as we gather, we would be in truth what you would have us be, your body, your arms, your legs, your people, your bride, your church, that you would build us up more and more um, into the image of your son. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Welcome. I'd like to welcome everyone here, everyone in the fireside, everyone in the cry room, everyone in the gym, everyone online. Welcome. Um, A couple brief announcements. The messenger is available. It's on some of the seats, and if you don't have one, you can get one by the mailboxes. The youth service trip is still being planned and going ahead, and if you'd like to donate to that, we're not able to do the coffee house and other fundraisers, so if you want to donate directly to that, just please mark that on the line of your check that you send in or put into the offering. Um, Another big announcement as we begin to get our former programs back online, we, this Sunday we'll be starting two in-person ABFs. In this room, a few minutes, 10 minutes or so after the service, uh, will be mine, which will be a time, a ex- more extended time of prayer. I think there's a lot of things to pray for. Pray for our nation, pray for our cities, pray for um, the concerns in the body, and then some time of, of discussion of the sermon. And Dave Lample's ABF on 1 Corinthians is going to continue in his original room. That's based upon responses. So if you haven't responded to Dave, there may not be room for you today, but if you would like to attend Dave's class, let him let us know. We can put him in a larger room. You're about at capacity right now for who's responded. So so we have two options, two offerings for in-person ABFs. We still have no children's uh, ministries or, or services going on, but we expect to get more things up and running in the coming weeks which is, again, why it's so helpful for you guys to respond. If you don't want to respond, three people have asked me this week this. You you can still come if you don't respond. You will likely be in the gym or have to find a seat in one of the other rooms. We have plenty of of space in the gym, and the gym has got a big, I'm apparently 20 feet tall in the gym. Hi, guys. Um, So there's plenty of space. You can absolutely come. If you'd like to sit in a certain room or if you're in a larger group, it helps us to know. Um, who's coming and what groups are coming. So that's, and also for the responses for the ABF, that's helpful as well. Um, Messenger, youth service trip. That is it. Let's return to the worship of the Lord in song. Please open your Bibles, if you have one, to Ephesians chapter 4. God willing, we will complete our study of Ephesians chapter 4 this morning. Move on to chapter 5 next week. Uh, This is now the sixth part um, going through this section. I'd like to read um, this section entirely. Pastor Daniel, seven weeks ago, began this new section on the new walk, uh, focusing on the former way of living, the former way of conducting ourselves, contrasted with how we ought to live as new creatures in Christ. And we saw the pattern that Paul lays out of how that change is accomplished through the putting off of old, wrong, sinful behavior, beliefs, and attitudes, through the putting on of new Christ-like behavior and attitudes, and through the inward renewal of the Holy Spirit. And then, this is now our sixth week going through it, Paul takes that paradigm and applies it to specific 
issues. He applied it first to the tongue and honesty and dishonesty. He applied it to anger. He applied it to work ethic and theft. He applied it to corrupt words. This week he's going to apply it to conflict. Um, So I'd like to read Ephesians chapter 4, verses 20 to 32. Verses 20 to 32. But that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. And to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down in your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him work doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up. As if it's the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you. Along with all malice. Be kind to one another. Tender hearted. Forgiving one another. As God in Christ forgave you. Lord God, we require your inward renewal. We need your spirit, your word, your grace to operate in our lives. Open our eyes to see, remove the scales, dig out our ears that they might hear, fashion us anew, equip us to walk in the good works that you've prepared beforehand. And Lord, as we look at these final two verses, dealing with conflict and anger and wrath, give us the grace to be tenderhearted, to be forgiving, to be good to one another as a reflection of your goodness to us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I I posted our text this morning as I often do on Facebook, and it occurred to me only afterwards that it might be mistaken as a political statement. It's incredibly relevant, is it not? It's incredibly relevant. We see around us all manner of wrath, clamor, anger, bitterness, malice, which is not to say that there is not cause, there's not provocation. Um, One of the reasons I've looked at this section as a whole is you've got to view this in context. This is not the first time, but now the second time the Apostle Paul is dealing with issues of anger and conflict. It's also important to understand this flows out of verses 20 to 24. If if we didn't view it that way, if we just viewed this as a string of pearls, this would just be ethics, morality, things to do and things not to do. You check your do list, you check your not list. But you'll also notice that not only in with these instructions flow out of the transformation that takes place in Christ, this is seen as the outflow of being in Christ, 
the byproduct of being renewed. But frequently, Paul will tack on a theological argument as well. So you notice in verse 25, put away falsehood, let each of you speak the truth of his neighbor. Theological tag on, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down your anger. Theological tag on, and give no opportunity for the devil. Last week we looked at no, let, let no corrupting words come out of your mouth, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, and they give grace to those who hear. Theological addition, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. And this week we have put off, or let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, theological point, as God in Christ forgave you. And so we've got to view this in context. And we've got to remember this is Paul's second instruction about anger and clamor. If, if we didn't keep that in mind, we might just think it's never right to be angry. But we know better. We studied back in verse 26, be angry and do not sin. In verse 26 and 27, we studied what to do with your anger. Your anger may have a righteous root. The Lord Jesus Christ himself became angry in the temple. God is angry at the wicked. In the first six Psalms, it's repeated. It is godly to be angry in the right circumstance, in the right time, in the right place. But more to the point, this, this text instructs us, citing Psalm 4, we must submit our anger to God, let him instruct our anger. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder on your beds and channel our anger righteously. What we're dealing with this morning is all the other types of anger that show up. This is why Paul can speak so categorically. So each and every and all going on. So I know that with what's going on in our world, many, many people um, are provoked as they look at the headlines, they look at injustices, and their anger may well be righteous. The important issue is then to submit it to Christ and to let God inform how to act. I think in many cases that is not going on around us, which makes our text this morning then relevant. But let's not just think of this as a text for people out there, because as I was saying, this is for Christians. This instruction is only for those who are in Christ. It's only for those who can be renewed by the Holy Spirit. This isn't a social ethic. Rather, Paul's vision, you'll see, clearly is actually for the local church. It's the one another that shows up twice in verse 32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. So where there may be relevance all around us in the world, this is for us, people in this room and in the other rooms and online. This is for us, it's not for them, at least not in the first instance. So we're going to look at this in two points. Put away, put away, and become I'll let Paul's language here direct mine. We've seen the sort of put off, and I think in many respects, put away is something synonymous to put off, but the Apostle Paul chose to say put away, or let's be put away, um, technically, and become. But that's what we're going to look at this, the what to take off. We're following that same pattern. Remember the three-way arrow we've had in the past weeks in our insert? We've got the put off, the put on, the renew. We've got it all here. So let's dive in with put away. Or remove. This is the type of language of a garment being taken off. And then Paul's point here is emphatic. We are to just completely remove these things. The grammar is equally emphatic that 
where you see the word all bitterness, you could translate each or every. Let each and every bitterness, let every kind of bitterness, each and every wrath, all kinds of wrath, let each and every anger, clamor, slander be put away from you. Take it off like a garment. Cast it from you. So let's go through this list. There's a development of thought here. And I think Paul, what he has in view here, are those ingredients that lead to conflict and anger and strife in the local church. There's a movement in the text from individual. He's talking to the individuals. This is not a corporate exhortation directly. It's actually individual. Each and every one of you, singular, do this. Paul is giving instruction not to the body as a whole, but to you and to you and to me. And definitely you, Wendell. This is personal. God is speaking to you. He's speaking to me. We can't slough this off as, well, yeah, the church should be doing this. I need to do this. I need to hear this. You need to hear this. And there's a progression from the inside out. I'll read a commentator. um, O'Brien says this. Uh, The sixth sentence returns to the topic of the sentence. Anger. Once again, the threefold pattern is observed in this paragraph. First, a negative exhortation, which is then balanced by corresponding positive. Finally, a motivational clause, which is um, a theological reason, rounds it off. As is fitting for those who have stripped off what belongs to the old man, anger in all its forms and vices associated with it are to be removed totally from the reader's. Paul's list appears to be climactic, progressing from an inner resentful attitude through its indignant outbursts and seething rage to public shouting and abusive language or cursing. Although verse 26 recognizes there is and there are circumstances where one may be angry without sinning, so great are the dangers of this passion that on all other occasions it must be rooted out comprehensively. The language is emphatic. The introductory adjective all signifies every form or kind as he lists five different aspects of rage. So there's a progression of what starts as bitterness and wrath and anger eventually flowing out into the mouth, creating strife and division. So let's move through this. First, we get to all or every bitterness. All or every bitterness. And your blank here is we're dealing with this inward resentment. Frequently, this is how things start. You take offense at something. You notice something and it bugs you. And it takes a hold and its roots begin to develop in your heart and your mind. To keep your thumb here, I want you to turn to the second greatest commandment. Leviticus 19. I think this is really important to understand on how this works. Using the same put off, put on, not this, but that, the Lord God speaks to the people of Israel in Leviticus 19, he speaks to us. This is where the second greatest commandment is found, loving your neighbor as yourself. And in its context, loving your neighbor as yourself does not first and foremost speak about lending money, giving of clothing and goods, helping someone in need. It's about dealing with conflict, righteously, rightly, And in my experience, that is the most difficult thing for people to do. People will gladly come and help someone move, gladly come and help someone put up a fence. Go talk to their brother who's offended them. They don't want to do that. So 
in its original context, the second greatest commandment upon which all the law and the prophets hang, along with the first, is about these very issues. They're important. Read this. Verse 16, you shall not go around as a slanderer among your people. You shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I'm the Lord. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So think about that in the, in the pattern that Paul's given. But Paul says, don't slander. Don't get bitter. Don't get angry. What should you do? Go talk to him. Love your neighbor as yourself. You get it? These are at odds with one another. So when your neighbor, when your brother does something that offends you, you need to be angry and do not sin. You need to think it through. And the first question I'm going to ask is, am I dealing with an issue of sin? And if the issue is not an issue of sin, it's an issue of preference, then you need to let go of your anger. You may still need to talk to them. Hey, that really bothered me. But, but if there is any time that I have righteous anger in my heart, it has to be anger at the things God is angry at. Sin, wickedness. So if your first check is, is this an issue of sin? No, they didn't invite me to their barbecue. Then whatever I'm dealing with, there's no room for any bitterness, anger, resentment. I could certainly go tell them, hey, you know, I was, I was saddened and disheartened that you didn't think of me. I'd love to come to your barbecue. You can certainly go do that if you want. But you're not dealing with sin, and there's no place for right. This is, that would then be something just cast off, all that bitterness and all that anger. There's no place for it. Let's say it is sin. Well, then Leviticus says to stop yourself from becoming embittered, to stop yourself from becoming angry and resentful, to stop yourself from slandering, go talk to them. That's the important thing to grasp. I cannot think evil of my brother. I cannot think evil of them and then not participate or be aware of some redemptive process taking place. I will hate them. And remember, hatred is not murder. Hatred is not, I want you to die. Hatred, as Jesus contrasted, explaining this teaching, is the Levite and the priest walking by the man beaten and bloodied on the side of the road. Because this is the Good Samaritan, is how Jesus explained what it means to love your neighbor as yourself. Hatred in that context is simply, I can't be bothered. That would be too messy. I got places to go. These are all the reasons we use for not dealing with issues of sin. We need to go talk to somebody. That would probably be a difficult conversation. It might be more than one conversation. It might get unpleasant. Don't hate your neighbor. Go talk to him. That's what loving your neighbor as yourself means. Or you will become embittered. You will become angry. You will be susceptible to the gossip and slander that's right in here. That's the second greatest commandment in Leviticus 19. And that's why, if you turn back to Ephesians, this instruction on anger comes after the first Paul is dealing with everything that's cleared up after we first submit our anger to the Lord. So back in verse 26, be angry, do not sin, do not let the sun go down your anger. Deal with it righteously. Is this an issue of sin? If it's not an issue of sin, whatever you do with it, this isn't an issue for anger and bitterness or anything. If it is an issue of sin, submit it to the Lord. And is there something the Lord would have me do? Should I go talk to my brother? Having first pulled the log out of my own eye. Having first got my heart right. Is this something I should just cry out and give to God? And the Psalms give us right examples of vexation and anguish and even anger at the wicked. 
How long, O Lord, do you judge them? Psalm 90 is a good example of the types of songs and prayers people vexed over injustice and wickedness around them cry out to God. That's a good way to deal with your anger if it's righteous anger. So Paul's given that instruction in verse 26. He's assuming we've submitted that to the Lord. And now, whatever's left, you just cast it off. Whatever's left, you just get rid of. Because that bitterness will take hold. That inner resentment will grow. And it'll produce, our second point, wrath. You put next to the blank, fury is kind of the idea. That inner just raging. And I think we're still primarily looking at something inward as bitterness shifts from just hurt and offense over to indignation. Um, this, is the, this is the same word used in Luke 4.28 when Jesus applied Isaiah to himself and compared his hometown people to, um, to be just as unworthy of a prophet as Israel was in the days of Elijah when he went to the widow and Luke 4 says, when they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. They were furious. And notice, this isn't something we pick and choose. Again, I want you to get this point. Take it, submit it to the Lord, identify it quickly, get on your knees, shut your mouth, ponder on your beds, do not sin, don't let the sun go down, deal with it quickly, and everything else, get it away from you. Anything left over, anything else you refuse to do that, no quarter, no compromise, total war, cast it off from you. Fury, which then leads to anger. This is the same word as in verse 26, be angry, do not sin. And so here my blank is, we're talking now about the sinful anger or the uncontrolled anger. Anger that's innately sinful or anger that you've refused to, to harness and submit to Christ. And we move on, it starts to vent into clamor. Clamor. And clamor are loud outbursts. The word used here can refer to some righteous things. Jesus, in the days of his flesh, offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries. Same word. But in this context, it's clear. And you know what this is. When people start to get mad, eventually they start shouting. Words fly out. They lose control. The volume raises. That's clamor, and there's no place for that. Again, cast it off. It is unrighteous. Loud outbursts. Those words just come out. And then we get to slander. Now we're dealing with words of anger. Uh, the word for slander is the Greek blasphemos. And so it can, it can, it could be even the direct words attacking the person or words about them. But notice the progression. What starts as an inner bitterness or resentment becomes a stoked fire of, of, of fury and anger that then overflows out of my mouth, words attacking my neighbor, words attacking them to other people. And Paul says, cast it away from you. There, this is the culmination of this entire section. This is precisely how believers ought to be different from unbelievers. This is precisely the type of newness that we need to walk in. And, and again, Paul's list is pretty mundane, pretty ordinary. And I would suggest to you it's these ordinary issues that are of extraordinary importance. 
We want to tell ourselves these are small things. My grumbling, my complaining, my gossip about someone else, my resentment that I've been holding for 15 years to someone else is not a big deal. It's huge. And it has the potential to rip the body apart. And so put it away. Let it be cast from you. He then gives a a closing um, catch-all. In case this net isn't broad enough, all malice. The word for malice can just mean evil. And, And so I think Paul has in view anything that will lead to this type of result, this type of conflict. In case he's missed something, you can just plug in to all malice anything else. And as I've said before in the previous weeks, and here's your blank, there are many types of malice, many types of evil. We've already seen lying speech. That's a type of malice. Um, Uncontrolled, undirected anger that lets the devil get a foothold. That's malice. Theft and sloth and laziness. That's a type of malice. Corrupt speech, rotting speech. That's a type of malice. And so he's got this catch-all. And, and notice the urgency of verse 26. You get, jump right on it. If you see bitterness springing up in your heart, do not think that's something I need to get around to. Remember Leviticus 19. If you don't act on it, if you don't bring that to the Lord and first ask, do I even have a legitimate grounds to be offended here? Is there any legitimate wrong that has happened? Because if not, I need to get over my big bad self. If there is, then... Is my heart right about it? Am I mad about this because King Jeremy missed the Lord? Or is this actually me being grieved about sin? That's another great question. My wife will ask me that periodically. If I'm getting upset about something or getting angry about something, she'll say, dear. You got, by the way, wives, you can say this, or husbands. you got to say it sincerely. My wife can usually pull it off with a straight face. Um, are you truly grieved that God's holiness is being sinned against and this person is walking in a non-Christ-like way? Or are you just mad because you didn't get your way? That's a good question to ask. You know, because you want to... Be, no, no, it's the holiness of God I'm concerned about. How dare they do that to me? You know, it, and that helps. Because even, even when you've got real sin, it doesn't in any way guarantee that your response to real sin is righteous. And you can have anger that's all types of self-centered and unrighteous about real sin. If it just becomes, well, King Jeremy... So only if it's truly an issue of sin and only if you're truly getting your heart right to God and you, your motives are right, then you ask God, I'll fill in some other things from, from the Sermon on the Mount. Lord, is there some log in my eye? And then finally, am I going to actually restore with the hopes of making peace with my brother? Then go, go talk to your brother. Absolutely. But everything else, cast it off. Because your final blank here. I think Paul has, by all malice, everything that breeds conflict. Everything that breeds conflict. Why do I say that? Well, for two reasons. The immediate context, these things, we know what they add up to. Bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander and malice. But look all the way back to the beginning of this section. Look back to chapter 4, where Paul begins his ethical instruction. What is his overarching concern? I, therefore, a prisoner of the, for the Lord... Urge you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling to which you've been called. What's that, Paul? With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. 
See, chapter 4 ends as it began with a focus on unity and peace and bearing with one another. And so Paul is singling out those things that would divide the body. I think in large respect, that's why he included the other things. Because certainly lying is going to divide and splinter the body. Theft, corrupt speech, anger. And so now Paul brings it on home with all of our wicked and sinful responses to those things that offend us. And we're to make no quarter, no compromise. It comes off. Now, you're going to need God's help to do that. You're going to need the inward renewal of the Spirit to do that. But there's no place to this. It needs to be amputation. You need to take it off like you might take off your cloak, your coat, and cast it from you. So what are we supposed to put on them? What are we supposed to put on? And again, this is one of those places where... The Greek gives a little more clarity. What you have in your ESV of verse 32, be kind, is really a verb which means to become. And Paul shifts now from speaking individually to corporate. Now the exhortation of what to put on is a corporate exhortation. Why? Because Paul has in view corporate peace, tranquility, and harmony. And so all you all become... and. This doesn't render in good English idiom, but it's become into one another. Become in regards to one another. So whereas the put off is personal. I need to take off every form of resentment. You need to take off every form of clamor and cast it from you. Here, we all together in regards to each other need to become something. It's going to be a process. It's not going to be instantaneous, but we need to be coming this more and more together. This is why I'm saying this isn't a message for people outside. It's a message for us. Become in regards to or into one another kind. Become kind. The word for kind here is a word that has shown up in two of the previous exhortations. Agathos, good. So it's interesting that, that Paul says the person who is a thief needs to learn to do work that is good. The person who speaks corrupt words needs to speak words that are good. And then here, those who would engage in conflict and strife and division need to become, in regards to the fellow people in the church, good. This is what Jesus says in the the Sermon on the Mount, the Sermon on the Plain. Love your enemies, do good to them, and lend. Good. That's the corresponding put on. Whatever, if you're striving with resentment and anger towards someone, you haven't really changed until you're actually of becoming good towards them, doing good for them. Your attitude towards them is good. You have more work to do until that happens. Be kind. Be good to them. Tender-hearted. Tender-hearted. Now, you might be able to, on the first put on, good or kind, think, okay, I'll just do good deeds. It doesn't matter how I feel. Well, you're going to get caught here in tender-hearted. You're going to love this one. The Greek literally means with healthy intestines. (laughs) Because in Greek thought, the seat of the emotions was not the heart, but the bowels. You get that. You've got to test the next day and examine what do you have, butterflies in your stomach, right? Um, people talk about being lovesick. 
And so the Greek mind located the strong emotions in the bowels. And so what he's saying is, have your affections the way they ought to be towards one another. With healthy intestines. The blank here, I want to say passionate, but passionate can sometimes refer to anger. I I want to say emotional, but emotional can have negative connotations too. But the point I want you to get, whatever word you want to put in there, is this is about affections and feelings towards one another. You can't simply say, I will do good for them and think nothing of them. You haven't changed You're still in the first put away until you actually start feeling proper things for those in the body. It's also why it's a becoming. Because you can't simply command your feelings, can you? you got to train them. you got to lead your heart. You grow in becoming more and more healthy intestined. That makes some great Valentine's Day cards. Yeah. Um, But that's... That's catching the emotions and the affections. Sometimes people may think, well, God never commands emotions. No, he does. Absolutely, right here. And we need to love what's lovely and hate what's hateful and despise what's despicable. And our emotions need to rightly be attuned. And since God has made you and I beloved, how ought I to respond to you? How ought I to feel in reference to you? This is the basis for Paul saying if any part of the body is suffering, the whole body is suffering. If any part is exalted, the whole body is exalted. Weep with those who weep. Rejoice with those who rejoice. This is not a command you can simply obey by doing things. We are to mortify and crucify sinful emotions, bitterness, and fury. And we're to put on in their place healthy intestined emotions. Right feelings. Passionate feelings, which will lead to forgiving one another, forgiving one another. There are a couple words in the New Testament used for forgiveness. The one here is focusing on a grace gift. It can also be used to speak of um, canceling a debt. In Luke 7, when Jesus goes to the, the uh, dinner at Simon the Pharisee's house, and the woman wipes his feet and weeps, And Simon doesn't understand. Jesus tells a story about two men who owed a man money, and one owed a great amount, one owed a small amount. And the man, when they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Same word here. But it also can be in reference to forgiveness. And so if if we're being good to each other, if we're passionate, hearted to another, we are going to be eager to drop and let go and forgive each other. I'm eager to forgive my children. My children do wrong. I need to talk to them. But I'm looking forward with anticipation to that hug and that wrapping of arms around them when we're restored. I'm eager to forgive. And that should be our attitude. Eager to forgive. Eager to forgive. That's what it's going to take for a body to be unified. It's a body who is committed to doing good for one another. A body affectionate for each other with emotions growing, and a body that is forgiving one another. And then Paul gives us that theological reason. And again, this helps make us understand this not simply as a do and don't, not simply as a moralistic guide, but something flowing out of the gospel. Because our forgiveness flows out of God's forgiveness for us. What does he say? As God in Christ forgave you. 
as God in Christ forgave you. Um, that's why we're to forgive. And again, notice, notice the flow. This is the fruit, not the root. We don't get forgiven because we do these things. We do these things because we've been forgiven. Which again is why you, you can't give this as a moral code to people who aren't for Christians. Because if God hasn't forgiven them, how can they model his forgiveness to them? This is for us. This is for us. Your second point here, our forgiveness then imitates his. Our forgiveness imitates his forgiveness. Let's, let's think about that for a minute. God's forgiveness is massive towards us. Both in its scope, if you think of all the sins you and I have committed, but also in its long-suffering endurance. I, I constantly have to remind myself God is not like me. Because when I come to the Lord for the 8,000th time with the same confession of sin, if it were me, around 8,000, 9,000, I'd start saying, again, really? I guess. And that is not how the Lord forgives And so when you think through your forgiveness, does it model, does it imitate God's forgiveness? Can can we learn something about the living God through the way you and I forgive? I'm going to pause and address another side issue here that's related to this that comes out here. Um, There's oftentimes some confusion about whether or not you can forgive people who have not asked for forgiveness. I think it's helpful to think of this in two categories. I, I think it certainly can be possible to release debts without the other person's involvement. Um, if, if someone owes me $100 without them asking me to, I can say, I cancel. I re- relinquish that debt. Your, your credit card company could. They won't. But they could send you a letter saying, we've, we've canceled your debt without your involvement whatsoever. It could be a unilateral decision, right? So as regards to material debts and obligations, I think, I think we can release them. But if our forgiveness imitates God's forgiveness, ethical, moral, relational forgiveness is always transactional. What I mean by transactional is God does not forgive the unrepentant. Let that sink in. Therefore, definitionally, it is ungodly for me to forgive the unrepentant. It's not like God. It's ungodly. Godly, not like him. I should be eager to. I should seek it out and desire to. I should not hold bitterness and resentment. But it's popular sometimes to talk about forgiving without dealing with someone. My concern with that is going back to Leviticus 19. If I forgive someone of sin, but I've never actually talked to them, that's kind of a cop-out for avoiding the second greatest commandment. You know what? I won't go talk to them. I'll forgive them. God doesn't forgive people who don't want forgiveness, who don't ask for forgiveness. He doesn't. And and we can't meaningfully either. Besides, when people learn of this, it can be insulting. I I had somebody write me a letter once. Um, We'd talked a couple times trying to work through something, and we weren't on the same page. But they announced to me that they'd forgiven me. That's mildly offensive. Right? Right? 
It's simply avoiding working through things. So again, this forgiveness is as God in Christ forgave you. God did not forgive you till you became convicted of your sin and you called out for mercy and forgiveness. So we can, we can drop debts. We can cross out things that are owed. But if we're to forgive as God forgives, we're going to go talk to our brother and sister. I only point that out because we really don't want to go and talk to people. And we will come up with any excuse not to do it. And it sounds really sanctified to say, you know what? I'm not going to go talk to them. I'm just going to forgive them. You're not loving them. You're not loving them. Love stops what you're doing, sees the person bloodied on the side of the road and tries to help them out. If you see some sin in my life, if the, I mean, think, think this through. If the Lord has given you the grace, the insight, the wisdom to see an area of sin in my life that I don't see, and you don't act upon that to help me out, you're not loving me. You're just, you're just taking the easy way out. Proverbs says, better is open rebuke than hidden love. Wait a second. Maybe he didn't rebuke him because he was just going to love him and forgive him. Uh-uh. And if God does not convict you of your sin, unless you go your merry way to hell, he hates you. Right? Are you not thankful that God brought conviction of sin upon you and upon me? So place this where it sits. Because up in 26, be angry and don't sin. Let the sun go down in your anger. Direct that. that. That's what's supposed to be. If it's a real issue of sin that's bothered you, you submit your emotions, your heart to the Lord, and then you go talk to that person. We're dealing with everything left over. And forgive. Jesus makes it really clear in um, Luke 17. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. If he sins against you seven times in a day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. There's our Lord's instruction. We've got to go talk to our brother. It's hard. And it can be messy and it doesn't always go well. But we don't get to say, well, because it didn't go well, I'm not going to do it. We just, this is the second greatest commandment. I'm not surprised it's hard. I'm not surprised it's difficult. But, it, but it's important for us to understand because this is how the body purifies itself and cleanses itself. This is how sores and wounds don't grow gangrenous and get infected. Because we're constantly being pressed. Whenever I find resentment welling up in myself, the initial thought that I think is either I need to remind myself again, Jeremy, this is not an issue of sin. Stop it. Or I probably need to go talk to this person. Those are my options. What I can't think is this is an issue of sin, but I'm going to cover it. Hating them is cowardly. And it's hypocritical Hatred because it's dressed in pious robes. No, our forgiveness imitates his. Our forgiveness imitates his. This is what it takes to maintain a unified, peaceful body. Um, This is the hard work we're called to, but these are precisely the areas. Our tongue, speaking truth or falsehood. Our submitting our emotions and our anger to the Lord our work ethic and our generosity, the topics and the edifying words coming out of our mouth, the way we avoid conflict and deal with issues righteously. This is precisely how we are to live differently. Let's read the opening verses as the worship team comes up. We prepare to sing our closing song. But now I say this and testify in the Lord, you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. 
In the futility of their minds, they're darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God. Because of the ignorance that is in them, due to their hardness of heart, they've become callous and have given themselves up to sensitive sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you've heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off the old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and is corrupt through deceitful desires, to be renewed in the spirits of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Please stand for our closing song.